Guasso, bro. Ay. <laughs> There's not a rule that you have to use the three subs. He's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Third Sub Podcast presented by Macy Sports. And we're back after a bit of a break as the news slowly starts to pour in. It's been a wild month of December, usually the time for, you know, a bit of holiday cheer, a little break, you know, a little snow, depending on uh, where you are. Instead, we've just, you know, been diving into a, a men's World Cup, which has been absolutely wild an experience. We've been diving into MLS news. We've had the, the double hit of MLS news dropping between World Cup games, in World Cup games, etc., etc. Uh, but as we've navigated this strange time in the Canadian soccer calendar, we've had a lot of good stuff to talk about. So we're back, as usual, to dive into all of the latest and greatest Whitecaps you know, a bit of an interesting news on a potential women's professional soccer league in Canada. Obviously, massive news on that front. As you know, also, can uh, Canada soccer ended up playing at that said World Cup? So there's obviously that <laughs> might have fallen between the weeds there. That, that two weeks where Canada was in it and amongst it uh, at the world's greatest stage. And then obviously a lot more. And to dive into that, as usual, I'm your co-host, Alexander Gungay Ruzik, joined by Samuel Rowan. And, I mean, yeah, it's been it's been a busy time, Sam. How are you holding up over this like soccer holiday bonanza, as we want to call it? Oh, doing very very well. I mean, spoiled here in the UK, I think, because especially now all the matches are at seven PM, and so for once I'm actually profiting off of my time zone rather than you know having to watch Whitecast matches the next day or, or getting up at three AM on the odd occasion. So. Uh, super super nice enjoyed the world cup uh, obviously you know canada's showing didn't go quite as planned but still interesting things to dive into there um, without you know without breaking down every match we're just gonna chat a little bit about general takeaways and then as you mentioned off the top uh, a potential new women's league you know they taking full advantage of this world cup cycle to kind of drum up what good press and excitement they can and uh certainly some interesting things there that we can get into a little bit and then yeah you know allegedly this is a white caps podcast but there's not a lot of white caps news to discuss <laughs> uh, a couple player movements in and out since we last chatted alex on this show uh but nothing too crazy i mean uh it's, it's typical this time of year but i feel like world cup especially has kind of slowed some of that stuff down and yeah just some news and notes bits and bobs that we'll we'll tuck into as well i mean uh yeah i hope everyone's enjoying the the holiday season it's uh been a busy one i think for for both alex and myself over the last month so uh apologies for the lack of third sub content but at the same time uh probably the you know this november december window usually very quiet uh for mls teams unless you're uh deep on an mls cup run which obviously the whitecaps haven't been for a long time so <laughs> Anyways, excited to get back into it. Uh, yeah, and hope you're enjoying the, the holiday season, staying warm and all of that. So, uh, yeah, ready to go. Yeah, it's something about the World Cup. It's like uh, just if in terms of MLS news, it's not it's not good news if you like reentry draft 
which did happen. And they just snuck him in there. And uh, the Whitecaps did benefit from one of the re-entry drafts for once. Made some pretty shrewd signing, if I say, mo- say so myself. I mean, not much of a spoiler on that front. But, yeah, in terms of MLS news, it's feels like it's been a, a weird offseason. But that excites me because it feels like we're about to hit the, the eye of the storm. Because uh, usually by now you start to see signings trickle in, especially mid-December. You start to see the rumors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think now, I mean, it's December 15th and it feels like we've had nothing go along. It's more been players leaving MLS, you know, little bits and bobs here, re-entry draft, et cetera. But it feels like, because like this year, the super drafts all the way on like the 21st of, of December. Usually they either just shove it in January or they do it early. So it feels like after that date, it's really going to pop off. And I think that's exciting because if you look at the Whitecaps, for example, it feels like they have so much to do. I mean, still some some holes at center back, still some questions in goal. Some you know some key departures in midfield. So obviously there's plans to maybe upgrade the midfield, bring some guys back from loan, maybe, uh, etc. It feels like there's still so much to do. And preseason starts on like January sixth for the Whitecaps. It's literally less than a month away. Preseason will start. Uh, everyone will be there uh, as the Whitecaps prepare for Champions League, prepare for MLS, which starts like end of February. Like it's all gonna go on a very accelerated timeline. That's why it's both like freaky but also exciting it's like like you mentioned maybe by now we would have had more to talk about but that just means things are going to be coming fast and thick and thin and maybe maybe you'll be hearing a little more from us on white caps moves at least in the near future uh but before we go into the white caps news i mean let's let's dive into it off the top it's because it's important again it feels like we're burning the lead just because it happens so quick it feels like uh, like maybe the wild the wild way of putting it for me is that canada played morocco in a men's world cup game less than 14 days ago it does not feel like it was 14 days ago in my head it feels like two months ago that they were playing that game and that it was you know canada going up against morocco morocco now you know on the verge of making a final maybe by the time this episode's out we'll know if they're in a final or not which would just be absurd but world cup it feels like it passed by so quickly and maybe it was at the case sam just to start for canada you think maybe it passed by a little too quickly and you know we obviously they tried to savor the moment but it just felt like one second they're there and one second you're, you're talking about returning home from Doha empty-handed. Well, I think that's what it's what makes sporting events of, of this magnitude special in general, right? Is that the moment is so fleeting. Like I think of it in other sports, you know, uh, like in hockey, guys always talk about when they, they're able to go on a cup run and win a Stanley Cup early in their career. And they think, oh, well, you know, it's going to be like this every other season. And then maybe they never get back right? You don't even have that chance again. You don't realize what you've missed out on. And I mean, for some of the players on Canada, that might be the case, right? In four years time, there'll be new younger players taking their place. And those three matches, that'll be your World Cup experience. So um, I think these things are, they almost grow in value inversely to how fleeting the moment is, right? If it's something you get to do all the time, then it's not that important. But if it's something that only comes once or twice in your career, uh, then it takes on a whole different uh, level of importance. So, uh, yeah, I think it went by very quickly and things probably got going a little fast for Canada. That seems like a a theme of their World Cup tournament. Uh, We were talking about before the show, ultimately, that first result, you know, doing so well against Belgium, but not creating the end product, not getting the result they needed. Uh, was just a blow they really never recovered from, and uh, and yeah, with with a, a group that had 
four pretty solid teams as, as we came to see, uh, that was always going to be tough. So I, I think overall, I was, I was very encouraged still by what I saw from Canada in the sense that this is tremendous experience for 2026. Were mistakes made? Sure. Were, were there some individual performers that maybe weren't quite on the level you would have hoped for? Absolutely. Uh, you know, will John Herdman still be there in 2026 where his decision is the right one? Uh, you know, probably not entirely. And, uh, and, and maybe you won't be here in 2026. That's going to be interesting as well. But uh, yeah, I think I was encouraged. It's great to see Canada on the world stage. And I think a lot of people were um, at least put on notice or impressed by, you know, the, that initial Belgian performance. And then the rest of the tournament may be, may be less notable, but it, it is what it is. Yeah, it's a, again, it's just such a wild tournament if you think about it like Canada put 20 games of blood sweat and tears and qualifiers obviously the work that isn't always seen yeah you know you add in the the pandemic giving them this opportunity in the first place with the format change and then you put in all this work you you make the big dance you're hyped about it for six months and then you show up and you know basically 135 minutes it was over when it was you know 2-1 Croatia halftime maybe you could say when I hit 3-1 that it really ended. So maybe 170, 60 minutes. It's just wild. Again, it shows the margins at this level that you can compete so so hard and you get to the top level and the top level is ruthless. The top level is World Cups, obviously. Even if you go beyond World Cups, as you see, to win you know, tournaments like the Gold Cup, Copa America, Euros, all that stuff across the world, it's incredibly difficult. And top teams struggle all the time you know you look at france just last summer they were uh not last summer the summer before they knocked out by switzerland at the quarterfinals of the euros and it's you know the next thing you know they're they're on the verge of a final themselves and it it shows just the margins etc but again it's one of those where it's like it feels so strange because on one hand it was obviously special for canada i think it was special to see them out against belgium singing the national anthem i think that was a very special moment you know seeing canada go up against belgium and just the fearlessness they had in that first game despite the result it was like okay they were they were playing like they went out and won the penalty at the beginning and they didn't score it but you're like oh they're on the front foot they're playing like there's these chances they're getting chances then they can then they conceded you're like okay the bubble burst fair enough but then they kept pushing like Stephanie Stacchio nutmegs Kevin De Bruyne like obviously it's such a small thing but it's like okay it kind of gave you an idea of Canada is not just on the stage but they're trying to make something of it but then you know in the end it, for for how nice that first game was and you know obviously they didn't get the result and in the end that ended up being what tanked their their tournament sometimes you just got to get the results uh, when they present themselves in the World Cup because that they won't always uh, do so. And then from there, it just fleeted so quickly. You get the special against Croatia. The Croatia game is almost more heartbreaking because especially it doesn't feel like you go out and set score such a memorable goal. You score a historic goal for your country. First ever goal at the Men's World Cup after not scoring in 86. You're you're happy about it. You're leading one nothing. You're starting to build confidence. And then all of a sudden, two mistakes later, you're you're 2-1 down and you're facing a... You're, you're behind the eight ball, you know, so to speak, but not in a good way. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the thing with the, this World Cup for Canada. Certainly a lot of good. And I mean, we'll be we'll definitely be talking about what the legacy this brings over the next few years. But it just feels so wild how final it is. Just like two games and all of a sudden you're like, OK, 
2026, you start phasing out these veterans, you start integrating these youngsters, you start focusing on this tournament. It's like, it's unbelievably cutthroat. And it just shows it's like you've worked so hard just to get to this pinnacle. And if you fail to, to breach it, it's already looking on to who's out, who's in, what's your what's your 2026 squad looking like? What's your 2023 Gold Cup squad looking like? Like it's no messing around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were we were talking about this right before the show. So I think the 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 one part of Canada's whole experience that's a little bit disappointing to me is that that moment there was to maybe capture a wider audience for things like the 2023 Gold Cup. Like, you know, if, if Canada had a little bit more success at this tournament, you've you've maybe got some some casuals, some new adopters of the men's national team tuning into those events with a little more interest in that. I feel like given the fact that they weren't able to get a result, you may have lost out on that opportunity a little bit. Now, it probably doesn't affect us too much, probably doesn't affect anyone listening to this podcast. But I think in the in the wider spectrum, maybe, you know, that like I mean, you look at the US and and when they're able to get out of the group, it kind of it changes the way that national team is viewed, right? So uh, I think that that would have been that would have been great just to have a win or even a, a point to to look at and maybe you know a, a rallying cry for for some fans to adopt uh, this men's national team. But I, I still think there's a lot of reasons to be excited. Obviously, I mean we know that uh, certainly the the listener knows that as well. Okay, well something we haven't really chatted about, Alex person to person face to face is the John Herdman comments and, and Herdman's overall management of the tournament in general obviously uh what he said prior to well after the belgian match ahead of the croatian match is what drew a lot of the criticism a lot of the attention but just overall as well i guess the way herdman managed the event as a whole i i think it was a kind of a you know a disappointing low for a guy that's always seemed to have the right answers and really been in control of his guys and the situation like throughout qualification there were several matches where we were covering and you know Canada 10-15 minutes in you were like wow Herdman had them set up and everything was perfect for how they were going to break down their opponent and it just didn't feel like that happened in this tournament obviously a different class of opposition in terms of coaching staff as well so uh yeah your overall thoughts I guess Alex on how Herdman dealt with this experience. Yeah, I mean, again, the World Cup, certainly a learning experience for Canada. And I think one of the biggest learners will be John Herdman. It's ultimately one where, you know, upon reflection, there was some good and there was some bad. I think overall that kind of sums up Canada. And the thing is, though, at this sort of tournament, if you're especially if you're a team like Canada, like teams like Belgium can get away with some good, some bad. They were abysmal and they were still a Romelu Lukaku hip thrust away from qualifying out of the group and ahead of Croatia. Like that, that's the, when you're a big team like that, things tend to fall into place for you. But if you're a Canada, there, you know, there used to be a lot more good than there is bad for you to even have a chance. And I think unfortunately that kind of sums it up that, you know, even across all three games, there were a lot of good. It's just you, you, you at this level when you have bad, you can't let it stay bad, and you can't let the bad hurt you. And I think you know the perfect examples are teams that uh, that ended up doing well. You know, they, they you show that you, you you can't let these moments kill you. And I think that's something that Herman will have learned. I think he did a lot good. I mean, to start on that front, say Belgium, they nailed the game plan against Belgium. I think they found the right ways to expose 
Belgium's, you know, old backline. They felt, you know, they 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 played the right risks. Like they're like, okay, yes, we're going to give up space to Belgium in transition, but they kind of banked that, you know, Eden Hazard, some of these older players, they weren't going to be able to keep up with 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 Canada in transition. They 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 also banked on some interesting, you know, some good ideas like throwing Richie Larea in as a starter instead of Sam Matakugbi ended up making Yannick Carrasco's life living hell almost uh, for lack of a better way to put it on that left side. And, you know, that ended up forcing Belgium to, you know, to make a, a sub at halftime just to, to give Carrasco some air because he was getting destroyed on that side and everything went so well. But then on the bad side, you also saw the margins of this level where, you know, Canada's backline just slept for five seconds, like just Belgium playing it along the back. Canada almost fell into this false sense of security where their their line like half pushed up. Maybe they weren't you know communicating to keep their line. Belgium pounces. It's in your net, and I think that again that's the the World Cup. The first game, you end up missing an opportunity. Canada definitely should have won. You know, especially looking back, could have been monumental to win. And then you go in from there, and then you're from from the, that point on, you need results. And then against teams like Croatia. Uh, you know, especially Croatia. Like Croatia is a team, as we learned in this World Cup, they they just need this moment. They need they need a moment of vulnerability, and they will expose you. I mean, the the one point of solace, I guess, if you're Canada, is that it even happened to Brazil, for example. Like it's Brazil went up one nothing against Croatia. They got vulnerable because they got all excited, like all oh, blood in the water. We're gonna make it two three nothing. We're gonna go play Argentina, and then next thing you know, they're picking the ball of the net, and then they're losing in penalties. Like that's what Croatia does, and for Canada. It was almost the same thing. You go up 1-0, you're like, oh, this Croatia team is old. They are up for the taking. Like, this is Canada where we got them. And they almost, like, they seem to play like that. They got they got it too excited. And then Croatia, like they do, they're like the old experienced boxer. Maybe you knock, you get a knockdown in the first round. You get all confident thinking, like, oh, I can get the knockout. And then next thing you know, you've got four fed on you just because they waited for the moments. They waited for you to get over eager. And they, and they punished you. And that, again, that's another area of learning for Herdman at the World Cup is that in these big games, you have to manage 15 minutes at a time. Like it's not, it's very cliche. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, that's genuinely true. You look at the world cup run, Canada managed the first 30, 40 minutes against Belgium. They fell asleep for five minutes. Now it's their game for across the 90 minutes. They fell asleep for maybe five minutes. And that was the entire game. Croatia, even Croatia, they were controlling play for the first 30 minutes. They fell asleep for 15 minutes. And by then two, one, no chance. Even if they got one back, no chance. And, Again, that's another learning lesson for Herdman that you gotta manage the moments. You gotta be willing to adjust your team. You gotta be willing to, especially you know areas where they were struggling in. One area, uh, you know, in terms of getting the team right from the start. You know, making sure you you really go on the right side of of, of winning midfield battles. For example, this level teams that do well in the midfield do well, and then there was just maybe this lack of game to game adjustment. Like against Croatia in the second half. They went to a three-man midfield and made a game of it for the second half, despite the slow the, the struggle in the first half. Then in the Morocco game, they went back to a two-man midfield and ended up killing them. So there, there's a lot overall for Herman in terms of the tactical. I think in the tactical, maybe it would be like a C, C-plus area, whereas like there was a lot of good, a lot of bad. And then obviously from a public standpoint, his, his comments for, for Croatia, personally, again, I think they didn't mean much in the grand scheme of thing, but publicly again, it's something, if you're going to say that and you're not going to win, you're going to wear it. Uh, so that's always going to be a learning lesson. So overall, I, I'd say I'd sum it up with the 
C plus C tournament from, from John Herman. A lot of good, a lot of bad, but as we learned at this level, you can't have any bad. So the bad ended up weighing on the good. And I think that kind of sums up a lot of the feel we've been seeing about John Herman out there. Yeah, I think that was very, very well summarized. I mean, in terms of the tactics, it was it was just it was always going to be so difficult after you didn't get a result in the first match because now you're now you're pressing against teams that probably the two best teams in the group, right? In hindsight, um, and you're you're having to force the issue against teams that know how to exploit you, um, you know, know how to exploit the best teams in the world, like a Brazil. So uh, I think that was always going to be tough. It's just, you know, um, I think one of those things where I, I would even maybe be a little more uh, understanding of Herman and give him like a B minus in terms of tactics, because I think things just didn't fall the right way. Yes, some some mistakes were made. I mean, you look at the the two man midfield of Ustakio and and uh, Hutchinson against Croatia and you wonder, was that the right way to go? Uh, but I guess Herman felt like going with, you know, his experienced guys, he felt like the guys he could trust the most out there was was a decision that was made. In terms of the public comments, I actually, I mean, I thought it was much less of a of an issue than maybe a lot of people did. I think just hearing them live, it was one of those things that, you know, got latched onto and maybe lost a bit in translation where I feel like Herdman was saying, well, I told the guys in the room, like, you know, come on, let's go get them. And obviously then it got taken as like a personal slight against Croatia. But to me, it was never from the like, oh, we're going to go get Croatia because they're no good. It was more like, well, we got to dust ourselves off and go do some damage. Right. But obviously, um, you know, media in especially in a place like Croatia, where, you know, any any little bit of motivation, any little bit of, you know, emotion they can add to it uh, is going to you know just be kerosene on that on that fire in hindsight that it didn't work out very well but i actually didn't i didn't mind it i didn't think it was the end of the world it's just obviously yeah when you you know when you catch a big l it's gonna it's gonna look really bad in hindsight but so overall i mean yeah um not herdman's you know virtuoso performance but i i was actually i think reasonably positive about what he did at the tournament maybe in comparison to a lot of people out there yeah, I mean, again, I think it's one where it feels like, you know, it doesn't feel like it was a total disaster. I think far from it. And it's just one of those where maybe one or two moments really over overtakes the whole tournament, you know, especially like, again, the first game you have to. It's one of those. It, he got it spot on, you can say. And it's one where maybe his players execute a little better. And then you could say, oh, well, it's up to him to make them execute. But that's just generally this level. It's like it's well, he got the plan I right mean, at a certain point. You need... They get a draw out of that match. He likely doesn't say what he says afterwards. They don't have to play the same way against Croatia. And it's like, you know, a, a domino effect where none of this might happen the same way if they just, you know, had a little bit of XG luck against, against Belgium. So, uh, yeah, I think it's... Just, Fine lines, fine lines, right? Yeah, well, it's again, you you go out, you play Belgium's, what, 2.5 XG to, to 0. 0.6, but it's just two things go against you. It's that your team can't finish, and especially the penalty. And again, it's one where, again, I'm um, it's been a while since penalty gate, if you want to call it, overblown as well. Like Again, it may, it just feels like no matter who steps up to take it, if you miss, 
someone's going to get blamed. That's just the nature of sport. It's hindsight. Oh, if, if Davies doesn't take it, you, you know, you're going to get the, Oh, why doesn't Canada's best player take the penalty? Like that's going to be the reality of, you know, stepping up to take a penalty, especially when there's good players like penalty gates happen all over the world. Oh, why didn't Neymar take a penalty against Croatia? You know, why doesn't X player take? Oh, Messi took a penalty first against the Netherlands. People Look, saying that it's Harry, Harry Kane shouldn't have taken the second penalty because once you've already taken one, you know, that somehow the, your advantage is lowered. But if they trotted someone other than Harry Kane out, everyone would he be misses. furious, right? So there's, there's no way like, to win these like things the, when you miss a penalty. Yeah, penalties are, I'd say the whole penalty gate was overblown, especially now as we've seen, like the, the save rate is up. Keepers are figuring out this tricks to stop players. They're figuring out to stutter step, stay on your line, like fake them if they're, if they're going to stutter step. If not, you know, get in their head. We've, we've seen it. Like the save rate's been something like 30 or 40% when on average it's like maybe 16%. Like goalkeepers just had a, have had a good tournament in terms of penalties and that's maybe one for, for Herdman, again, frustration that he ends up wearing something that maybe isn't completely his fault. Because, yeah, you could say you dictate a penalty taker. Uh, but again, it's one of those where there's two good approaches. You can have a guy and run with that guy. Look at Argentina. They run with it with Messi. Messi missed a penalty in the group stage is one that almost made his team not able to go out. If Argentina gets accident in the group stage, you think people are like, oh, you know, Argentina's, you know, they, they picked Messi as their penalty taker. Like, what are they doing? Like, again, it's one of those where it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that Herdman ended up maybe wearing that one a little. So in that one, it was like, didn't really feel like the punishment fit the crime, so to speak, saying like, oh, Herdman, if he's a top manager, yada, yada, yada. You know, and then you look at as well as like the, yeah, the F Croatia thing. It feels like one where maybe what he meant to say was like, Oh, you know, if we if we play like this, we can go out and F Croatia. And obviously, like, even if he said that, that's gonna be taken like, oh, they want to F Croatia. But like again, like I said, it's you don't want your coach either to go out, oh yeah, we want to just go over and get F'd by Croatia. Like it's <laughs> that's not gonna be winning you any mind games at the top level. And maybe in hindsight, maybe you keep the fuel away from the the 3.9 million you know, population country who has done so well to punch above their weight. But that's, again, that's what Croatia does. It's like I've said with Croatia, there's a reason why they're so good, like at, at what they do and why they've punched above their weight They're They take rejection. They take f- fear of failure and they just, they master it. So yeah. again, I think Herman, you look at all the, the extra stuff. I think the penalty gate, the, 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 you know, F Croatia game would maybe overblow. And then you look at tactics. I think overall it was mixed. There was a lot of good, a lot of bad. And I think what's key with John Herman, where he's really going to have to cement his, like his, his Canamente legacy, so to speak, for lack of a better way to put it, is just how he learns from it. Because, you know, all the all, off the field stuff, whatever. But in terms of tactics, one thing we've seen with John Herman and why he's done so well is that he learned. He learns. There, there was times in 2019 where, he didn't fully look up to the job with Canada. It felt like they were punching below their weight tactically. It felt like they weren't getting the maximum potential. Like they had a, you know, breakthrough against the U.S. 2-0, but it felt like they'd lost to Haiti. They'd lost to U.S. 4-1. They'd lost to Mexico at the Gold Cup. They, they had a lot of, you know, moments where like, oh, is, can Canada get over the line? And how did he respond? He went out and had a perfect tactical qualifiers like bang on and he learned from it every game it was a learning moment and what's nice is that he's rarely made the same mistake twice uh so certainly he has a lot of mistakes he made in this world cup and again you make them at this level one thing that canada was if we're going to look at at 
you know, from him, Canada wanted to play in the front foot. It was a decision made between the players, the staff, et cetera, that they wanted to play in the front foot. They wanted to go in at least if they were going to go out, go out swinging so they can learn what it's like to play at this top level, at least show that this is Canada. This isn't like, okay, throw 11 men behind the ball, hope for some goalkeeping masterclasses and uh, an Alfonso Davies transition goal. Canada did go out there and, Again, as they showed with the zero points, maybe it didn't always have its benefits, but at least they'll know that, okay, they went out and played guns a-blazing, and they were still one goal away from beating Belgium. They were still one goal away against a Moroccan team that went as far as they did. They did get blown out against Croatia, but they showed for 30 minutes that they can hang with these sorts of teams as long as they don't make these sorts of mistakes. So for Herdman, his huge legacy from this tournament is going to be how he learns from this, how he learns to manage games against the best at the best level, do not make the same mistakes twice. And uh, that's what's going to be fascinating to see how uh, he, how that goes. Cause I think that could be, end up being the defining uh, legacy moment for him. Okay. So rapid fire here without, without too much uh, explanation. I just going to ask two questions. Is John Herdman managing Canada for the gold cup in 2023? And is John Herdman managing Canada at the world cup in 2026? Fun question. I'm going to say yes for 23 Gold Cup. I feel like that's pretty straightforward. Not going anywhere. Again, chance to continue to build, freshen the pool, etc. 2026, the tougher question, but ultimately I'm going to stick with yes. It's three and a half years away. I just think it's one where Canada will struggle to bring in the sort of clear upgrade that you'd need. Like, you know, at this point, if you're bringing in someone you want to say, well, we'll use the easy name, just the links, Carlo Ancelotti. But it's like, can you get a Carlo Ancelotti right now? Prime away from a Real Madrid, especially now all of a sudden Italy links are hanging, you know, heating up. Do you risk firing Erdman just to try to go to Ancelotti? What, what if he ends up going to Italy, et cetera, et cetera? It feels like one of those where the plan has always been for 2026. Like I think, say in 2018, he was hired, it was 2026. Especially in 2029, in 2019, you find out the asinine format. Canada had this 0.5% chance of making 2022. By then, they'd started planning for 2026. And then, the, the, you know, COVID happens, the format changes, Canada gets a second lease on life, they go out and qualify. They're ahead of schedule this World Cup, let's just say. And again, not to say... Just because they're ahead of a schedule, that doesn't maybe excuse the zero points and, and all that. But it just shows this this World Cup was always going to be bonus. So the fact that they went out and got punched in the month na- mouth now by Croatia, Morocco, Belgium, that wasn't going to happen before. They were going to go into 2026, you know, raw, without experience, unfiltered, and they were just going to see what it's like in front of 50,000 screaming Canadian fans, uh, you know, at, at home. At least now they've had this experience of, okay, this is what it's like to play against 60,000 Moroccan fans who whistle you every time you're on the ball and pierce your eardrums, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for now, you you let him see out that plan until 2026. You let him grow and learn. And from there, then you see what's going on in 2026 because a lot can change. All of a sudden, one thing that's maybe lost in Canada's whole World Cup discussion is that, you know, to do well in the World Cup, you need a lot of good tier one players. It's like, you know, the, the easy, excuse, the, the the way to put it, or tier one, all the top four teams have tier one players. Morocco, everyone's saying, oh, who's Morocco? They're sleeping. Morocco has, I think it's 17 tier one players playing in top five leagues. And some of them are amongst the best in their position. You look at even Croatia, they've got 16 tier one players. Uh, Canada has five. Like Canada still needs to build the player pool. That's, you know, Kone move, is moving up. Uh, yeah, as we've saw, Alistair Johnson's moving up. Those are more guys pushing towards tier one leagues. That's a start. 
So I think in four years, for example, it's also a different story if Canada has 14 tier one players. All of a sudden for a manager, like, okay, that might be attractive. It's not just, you know, Alfonso Davies and company. It's Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, Ismail Kone, whoever else comes out through the woods in there. So I just think from that standpoint, as well as from what Herdman's building, you let him see out 2026. You see if he learns, uh, which I'd assume he is based on his track record, but from their perspective, you see if he learns, so to speak, and then... uh you see what's going on after 2026 because then the profile is going to change. Canada's going to have a much better team. They're going to have that experience. Maybe they go on a decent run in 2026 and it looks like an attractive job. And then it's a whole different story. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think I had concerns prior to the to the tournament that if, if things went reasonably well, that maybe Herdman wouldn't be long for the Canada job and that he'd scoop up an attractive club offer in the UK, but I think given the way the tournament went, um, an offer so attractive that it pulls him away from what comparatively is like a, a cushier job, right? Like managing a national team, I think is a lot, a lot re- more relaxed, a lot nicer um, in, in a day-to-day respect than coaching a club team, except for, you know, when you're facing the scrutiny of a major tournament. So um, I was thinking prior to this that maybe Herdman would get drawn away, but I'm with you now. I'm going to say yes to both of my questions where I think he will stay on for this 2026 project. And then maybe at that point, if he's able to have some some real success, it's a good jumping off point if he still wants to uh, do some club managing down the road. But I just thought it's, it's an interesting element of this outlook. I mean, I think a lot of people are already you know talking about players for, for 2026, but how... Uh, the CSA, who you know is renowned for their quality decision making, uh, deals <laughs> with the leadership group, deals with the coaching. Uh, I'm just going to be very curious to see how that goes. But um, you already kind of hinted at this, suggested at this, talked about it. Uh, two major pieces going forward for Canada making some moves to uh, you know Scotland wouldn't be a top five league, but they are kind of a tier one club in a, in a lesser than league. Uh, so Alistair Johnson going to Celtic and then Ismail Kone headed to Watford. So um, tremendous to see. I, I think, you know, uh, as you said, the more the more Canadian players can be at that kind of, I think, you know, basically the bar I would set is Europa League or better tier clubs, right? Um, you, you want as many of guys as possible in those pool and especially two players in Johnson and Kone who... I think undoubtedly have the the pedigree and the the potential to be impact players at at that level, right? I mean, we saw for Richie Larea, the move to Nottingham didn't really work out that well. Um, I think ultimately, though, for Kone and Johnston, this is uh, these are going to be impact contributors for these clubs. At least that's what I would expect. So excited to watch them in new colors going forward. Yeah, and I think this is going to be the biggest part of the World Cup for Canada, a, a part of, of course, the learning lessons, just because, again, there's a reality that until they improve the squad, and again, it feels harsh to say, but that's just reality, in ter- in ter- until they improve the squad in terms of levels they're playing, et cetera, et cetera, they're always going to be underdogs in the world game. And that's something to remember, that on paper, Canada was one of the smallest, you know, are like, sort of quote-unquote again doesn't feel right to say but weakest teams in in this world cup just because they lacked tier one players and there's just a reality that to compete uh, talent can take in international soccer especially where there's you know managers usually have less of an effect just because there's less time to work 
on tactics as you do at the club level. Like you're not spending four weeks of preseason, just hammering a high press into your team, hammering, you know, mid blocks and all this sort of stuff. Like players do matter. And you see, like you look at the U S their, their talent kind of willed them to, to the round of 16. And, you know, then of course, in big games, like co- coaches do, I think the whole do managers manage, do, do managers mean something at the national team level? Yeah, of course, they don't mean as much as at the club level. I still do think they mean a lot, of course, especially game to game. But there's a reality that, you know, you're not always going to win the managerial battle. You're not always going to win, you know, the tactics, etc. But your your players can sometimes overcome that. So I think Canada needs to continue to push players to top leagues. And it's nice now because there's pipelines. There's MLS, there's CPL. There's players coming, going straight to European academies, et cetera. But of course, the more players who can move there to set the road, set the president, the better. So Alistair Johnson, I think that's a great move for him. Uh, he's still super young. I think this guy we're talking, knowing how Johnson is, this is a guy who's going to probably start in 2026 and knowing how he, he he's going to age, he could be starting in 2030, knowing Alistair Johnson, of course, who knows what will happen between him and there and then. So the fact he's going to a, a top team uh, in Celtic, yeah, there's going to be a lot of interesting games where Celtic holds a lot of ball, they dominate. But I think that's going to be good for Johnson just because you want him to continue to, to improve his very strong on the ball ability. We know he can defend. It's, you know, it's going to be good for him to really improve that side of the game. And then he'll play Champions League if Celtic does as, as they should. And that'll be good as well for him to go out and test himself in that environment. That's for Ismacone at Watford. I think that's a good club, especially that we've seen this plan with Udinese because I have that partnership in Serie A. And it sounds like at some point or another in the summer, for example, depending if Watford gets promoted, he either goes to Premier League, he goes to Serie A, or he sticks around in the championship if they don't get promoted. And I like that there's this plan already for him, whereas with Richie Larea, he goes to Nottingham and maybe the plan was for him to play in the championship the next year, but then they get promoted as like the sixth place team. And then all of a sudden you're in the Premier League and you weren't maybe ready for this influx of cash. So I like that there's already these contingency plans. Like, oh, if they make the Premier League, then maybe he goes to Serie A to get an embedding. Or if they stay in the championship, etc. So it's good to see that free Smokone, Alistair Johnson. I think it's good because, again, every time you have a big player in a big league, it increases your chance of of having these big moments that can help you in the future. Like, no doubt Alfonso Davies winning a Champions League and dominating Champions League helps guys down the road, like, say, Jonathan David, Tejan Buchanan, etc. Now, Tejan Buchanan going out being so good in, cha- in the Champions League, Stefan Ustakio being so good in the Champions League. You need more and more of these players at the top level to help push more Canadians down the line and be like, oh, you know, this Sam Adekubi guy plays with Stefan Ustakio. He must be decent. Maybe we need a left back. He's cheap because he's Canadian. No one knows about him. Boom. That's a that's an attractive signing, and that that pays off down the road. And if Ismail Kone does well, you know, say Rita Zuhir breaks out next year in Montreal. Oh, this Rita Zuhir comes from the same academy or same team as Ismail Kone. Okay, maybe we should be having a look at him. So I think it's huge just because you need your big players at the international level, and Canada's getting that now. Very well said. Okay, final Canada World Cup point. Uh, this is an interesting one. Obviously, drew a ton of traffic on on Twitter and just in in news in general when it came out. And you know, because we're media people that have been covering the K men's national team for a while, of particular interest to us, the Chris Jones CBC piece on you know Alfonso Davies's star dragging down the rest of the men's national team. And uh, 
I mean, I mean, to me, I think the thing that was even more notable about it was just the, the sort of refusal back down from that stance and, uh, you know, continuing to call out Davies and, and other players for, you know, not doing the, the mixed zone media. Uh, I think my frustration with this whole saga is just the, the attitude that big media in Canada has taken towards soccer at this World Cup, which is sort of to, you know, trot out the whichever good old boys or, or their friends to, to send them to the World Cup and kind of cover, cover the game in that way rather than, you know, the way you would see something like hockey covered. So I think that was something really that I came away from this World Cup continuing to be like, this country still has a way to go in terms of treating the men's national team, treating the World Cup like the serious, very serious event that it is. Um, and then obviously, I mean, you could you could nitpick things in the individual article. I don't even think I need to really do that. That's kind of self-explanatory. But to me, the biggest takeaway was, yeah, you know, broadcasters like CBC, uh, TSN put out some, you know, some graphics and some things that were a bit embarrassing too. Like T- well, TSN put out that, who are you cheering for now that Canada's been eliminated from the World Cup after their second match? Like just, you know, tone deaf stuff where clearly there's no one in the room, no one in the building who kind of says, hey, I've been covering this team since, or I've been following this team since they were playing Aruba and maybe you shouldn't tweet this out. Maybe you shouldn't put this article out. And so, you know, Alex, I think with, with people like you, especially that, covered the team so well and so extensively it was just disappointing to uh have some events like that happen at the world cup and i'm i'm hoping especially on home soil by the time we reach 2026 that the right people the people that have really been there uh you know in the trenches covering the team the people that have good relationships with the players and the the manager you know are, are the ones actually asking the questions and the one sharing the stories of this national team yeah, I mean, it's it's something that, obviously, the piece itself, let's be honest, it was pretty, you know, the facts were inconsistent. It was, rac- the racial undertones were stunning and not, you know, it wasn't very good on that front. So, I mean, we won't have to dive too much more into it because what's been said on that has been said. But I think overall, it's a great point, Sam, in terms of, you know, again, learning from these sorts of tournaments. And I think for Canada there's a unique chance to build something with the soccer ecosystem, especially there's so much growth. I think it's important to know, like, you know, for, for those, for example, who want to follow soccer the next four years, like, Oh, Canada's going to world cup. Maybe let's pull them along. They're starting to build, build an ecosystem. There's eight CPL teams. You know, you can go check out your local soccer. There's three MLS teams. There's soon to hopefully be a women's league. You know, the women's team is also playing a lot of key games, um, you know, obviously the men's team playing a lot of key games, there's an ecosystem being built and, and it's like, you want that ecosystem to be, you know, productive and healthy. And I think as we've seen it in places like England, for example, places where media can really scrape down and attack and it just makes everything confrontational and it makes, it creates this really unhealthy ecosystem of you know players are fearful of speaking the media because they're going to get undercut and there's there's this whole concept of fear and i think for canada you want to create a healthy productive culture because i think that would be good for the game long term because there's a reality that canada i mean soccer is catching up but if we can you know soccer could absolutely this might you know maybe it's a wild take but based on the 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 ever-changing makeup of of canada for example 
if soccer continues to get mainstream coverage, it's going to blow hockey out the water. Again, I say this as someone who's played a lot of hockey growing up, but you just see the amount of like, oh, it's just wild to think that, yeah, Canada makes the men's world cup first time in 36 years. And they're, they're getting viewership numbers that like, you know, that that's punching with some of the best hockey games ever. And hockey is a sport that there's always big games every year. It's something that's insular. It's something that's been growing for a long time. And you just see the immigrant population. You see the, the makeup of the country. There's this chance to really grab that attention and, and grow something long term. And I think to do that, you have to do it the right way. You can't be putting out nonsense BS that people read like, oh, OK, is this true? He's a trouble. It's, you know, and then you start pitting the players against each other. Then the players understandably if like if i'm alfonso davies i don't want to talk to you know someone who's going to do that all of a sudden alfonso davies isn't talking to one of your biggest national broadcasters that's less of a chance for him to, to hear his voice less of a chance to tell a story and uh, so i think you just want to build a positive ecosystem i think one thing to clarify it doesn't have to be like rah 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 all the time like you know there'll be moments where it's not pretty you know there'll be moments where there's scandals there's issues that need to be called out at the federation level there's times where canada's underperforming on the pitch they did this world cup like they were as, as we said we can break down at length where they struggled tactically where they you know maybe john herman got out coached etc etc that's not to say for example that canada went to this world cup it was all gravy they had their zero points they had their participation trophy and they went home but i think it's also important to say you, you can't be doing stuff like that you can't be like oh well, alfonso davies is a problem he's etc etc you have to go about the criticism the right way and there's certain things that can and should be criticized and there's things that shouldn't like you want to criticize alfonso davies for maybe not tracking back in certain games or maybe not you know maybe holding on to the ball a bit too long go for it. that's fair that's you know that's the sort of criticism that i'm sure you know alfonso davies himself will be looking at okay how can i improve the game and that's the sort of ecosystem you need you go you go to the other levels etc but uh it just feels like yeah it's something that goes against the ecosystem that's being built i think you've seen over the last few years there's been a lot of good progress and hopefully that can keep up just because i think if you can build a healthy soccer community post 2026 like this sport could explode here and you want you want to do that the right way yeah absolutely i guess just a couple uh shoot offs from that i i mean one of the first things that stood out to me too was you know all this being made of not being able to get guys for media availability and i know because i mean alex at, at some point during our, you know, our careers doing this, you want to get someone for an interview and it's just, it's even, it, it never comes together. Uh, generally those people, like if you do manage to get them, they're not going to be great interviews anyways, because if they don't want to talk, they're not going to give you anything useful. So it's like, even if you'd heard more from Davies at this tournament, it would have been the classic hockey player, you know, get pucks in deep type anecdotes. Like it wouldn't have been anything valuable anyways. And then, I mean, secondarily, it's just like, yeah, the, I don't know, the, the entitlement thing, just the, the idea that somehow, you know, the players sort of owe you something in this media capacity, I think is, it just creates, as you said, such like an adversarial attitude, right? Where now it's media versus players versus team, whereas you want more of a, hey, I'm going to tell your story. I'm going to prop you up. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bring recognition to, to your story, what, what you've been doing. And, uh, and certainly on like the, the lifestyle or the, the, the person perspective, you know, talking about the individual, I think it always needs to be like that collaborative, I'm going to tell your story approach. And as you said, 
with the play on the pitch, I think you can be critical. Like players tend to respond fine to that. They're like either, okay, well, I, I disagree with your opinion or they go, okay, that's, that's interesting. And they kind of look at it as constructive. So I think it's just, that's feels to me like the unwritten rule is that you don't, you know, you don't take someone's choice with what they do off the pitch and turn that into uh, an attack, especially during a world cup. I don't know, just completely crazy. Uh, it, you know, I don't know, Really, to me, the the fault is not even with the author so much as it is, you know, some outlet like CBC. Like, there's an there should be an editorial team that goes, yeah. hey, whoa, 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 let's just maybe table this one and and, and write something else. Like, it, you know, whoever you're paying to edit, uh, there there was failures at multiple levels there. Anyways, uh, speaking of what's hopefully not going to be a failure. The Project A Women's League, uh, as, as we mentioned off the top, you know, taking advantage of this World Cup hype and obviously backed by two of the biggest names in the women's game in Canada, Christine St. Clair and Diana Matheson, um, two teams currently involved, at least, you know, explicitly committed in the Vancouver Whitecaps, who are obviously now, uh, you know, run by Steph Labe at the, at the women's level. And then Calgary Foothills as well getting in on the action. But uh, two of eight teams filled and not a lot of details about the league in general. I mean, you do know that Air Canada and CIBC are on board, which is nice to see. Um, But Alex, I guess I'll say right off the top that uh, I'm having to divorce my emotional feelings about this league and my practical feelings about this league because... The emotional side, like, we like covering Canadian soccer. Uh, We like covering the women's game. And having a domestic pro women's league, you know, that's going to create jobs not only for players, but also for for staff and also create a bunch of awesome events. Like, all of this sounds tremendous. But I am a bit concerned that you've only got two teams committed, two major sponsors committed, and a lot of the details of this league very much feel like they're still at the proposal stage and uh it's going to be interesting to see whether they can you know leverage this moment and this opportunity into owners looking to you know put money down and uh, i think that's that's the impasse that a lot of women's sports in north america in particular finds itself at right is um, everyone seems to want this product everyone seems vaguely optimistic about the idea of more women's pro leagues uh but actually getting owners that that have the cash to to make these financial commitments big brands to make these financial commitments is more of a challenge than than you would probably hope for so i think at least within canada this is going to be a a huge test of you know can the build it and and they will come model actually work for women's sport I, i really hope it does but i'm I'm nervous about what's going to happen, at least at this point. Yeah, I think it's one of those where uh, it's going to be interesting, I think, just to see how things unfold. You know, it's it's going to be intriguing to see because I think, again, it's huge. It's They need a women's league. I think that's no doubt. I think that's like been priority number one. So I think I'm I'm happy uh, in terms of that front. I think the the there's always going to be a risk of going out so early. I think is how I you know I put. It. I think if you're going to go this early, there's always risk because you know it's it's an unstable world. You never know what's going to happen. I think certainly 
what's nice at least is that there's a lot of big enough backers that you'd trust to, to now put the pieces into action. You know, like, you know, again, we've seen what Diana Matheson ever since she's retired, the, the work she's got in, she's obviously got her MBA of business from Princeton. So it's, you know, you can't doubt her credentials. So you look at the white caps being involved, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of heavy hitters there. You look at the corporate sponsors, that's good. It's just now, okay, you've gone out with this announcement early. Let's just go out and execute. And I think that's, what's going to be interesting to see, what happens? I think the good news is, again, there's a lot of solid footing that might not have otherwise been there. I think the fact that they're able to pull CIBC and Air Canada off the top is huge, uh, especially that they're direct sponsors working with the league. The fact they've already been working with uh, a company that does streaming services, that's also huge to to get ahead of, okay, how do you produce and broadcast a league? I think that's something that's maybe a, a bit you know, underrated to, to, to look at first. You've got two clubs. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously you'd like six, you'd like eight clubs off the top, um, but it also does help that it's say the white caps involved and not, you know, some unknown entity saying, oh, a team in X city uh, is involved. So that's how I'd say about it. I, I, I certainly agree that it's like from a business standpoint, it is okay. It's a bit early, just in the sense you get all excited, you get hyped. Like, yes, there's a woman's like, okay, 2025. That's a lot of time between now and then there's a lot of X's to to, to tick off a lot of, you know, dot your X's, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on that front. And it's going to be just interesting to see how they go about it. Cause I think the biggest thing is just ensuring the six, get the six markets, the six other markets to get to eight. Cause I think from what I've seen, I think once that's done, I feel like there's a lot already that's good. That's in place. I imagine you already got the heavy hitters, corporate sponsors. I feel like more sponsors are going to come in. That won't be an issue. You know, there's already, they're looking at a lot of ideas in terms of, you know, for example, to save money, they're planning on doing maybe some hub cities where you have little tournaments, you try to, you know, have fun with that. There's a lot of been a lot of planning on that front. But I think ultimately, you just want to see the eight teams secured and then go from there. Because I think that's going to be the biggest thing to take care of finding those eight markets, especially you see maybe in the CPL and Edmonton fold. So you don't want a situation like that in three, four, five years, of the league, you want to get the right markets, the right owners, obviously, you can never predict you know, what will happen in that front, but you want to get that all secure and solid. So overall, I mean, I'm excited about the league. I'm excited about a lot of the potential. So I'm just more, you know, waiting and seeing how things go on the market front so they can get those eight markets and then they'll be exciting. But uh, I'll be interested to see. I think the biggest thing will be what happens with the CPL on that front, because certainly it sounds like they've been looking at building a league. Again, it feels like maybe since day one, Maybe they should have prioritized a women's league first. <laughs> Maybe looking back in hindsight, obviously they needed to build a men's league for the 2026 World Cup. And it's been great to have a men's league, but it just feels like the a women's league is overdue and they've been looking. But obviously, uh, you know, they've they've dragged their feet to an extent that this project has emerged. So it's like, what happens to that? Do they continue developing something? You know, do they maybe does this maybe prompt both sides to come together and realize, OK, there's a bunch of healthy franchises. There's, you know, a project you you, you, you put brain force together, obviously, uh, from a neutral standpoint, I think that would probably be what's best. You know, maybe you get some some strong CPL markets, you throw in like a, a Pacific, you throw in like a, a Forge, you Halifax, you know, and you're 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 on the right track in that that front. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Cause I think also what would be key is you do not want like a fracturing. You don't want like, oh well, they make a league, let's make a league. And then all of a sudden you got corporate sponsors pulling one way and and all this. Cause I think overall, if you're gonna build a strong league, you need to do it in a unified together fashion and, and just go from there. I mean, yeah, that 
that league struggle, that was a bit of a problem for women's hockey, right? Like it got, it got kind of fractured and then it was difficult to, you know, we got people getting pulled in different directions. So certainly want to see Canada avoid that on the women's front. I mean, you, you hit on a lot of good things. I think just seeing Edmonton fold uh, in the CPL makes me generally nervous and apprehensive because you want all these Canadian soccer projects to succeed, but it's like, uh Oh, there's some blood in the water here, but obviously they had to go through the pandemic as well. And that was like a, a nightmare start to a league, really, right? Um, so maybe, you know, throw a little bit of cold water on that. Maybe it's not quite as concerning. And, uh, and you know, we got a Women's World Cup next year. So I think that should create some additional positive momentum as well. Uh, I am overall optimistic. It's just, you know, these, these things do lurk. And uh, it would just be disappointing, so disappointing if they got it wrong. And then women's soccer in this country in a sense, took a bit of a step back because they weren't able to to get this thing going the way they want to. So, uh, yeah, you know, try, trying to be hopeful in that respect. And I think that ultimately, as you said, some kind of alignment between CPL, you know, that the lurking entity that is Canadian soccer business and the CSA, um, if you can somehow get them all on board, um, and kind of you know, supporting this thing together that that feels like the best outcome um, but then you know still wanting to maintain people like Sinclair and people like Matheson at the at the helm because you know I think you want the most successful players from your the, the women's game in Canada to be at the forefront of the identity of this league um, you know I feel like that's really important so Certainly looking forward to more on that front. And uh, and certainly you know, if there's more news and notes, we'll, we'll be covering it for sure because excited to dive into that when the time comes. But uh, with that being said, we're going to take a little bit of break and then we'll dive into some, some Whitecaps news on the back end of the show. Hey, Third Sub listeners. Sam here with a quick word from our friends at Macy's Sports. Been a while since we did an ad read, so thought we'd update you on a couple of things available in store. Uh, first and foremost, of those, Darby Magazine issue number two out now and available for purchase. Uh, if you like good storytelling about Canadian soccer, uh, it's a great writing, great photography, great overall aesthetic. It's a good publication for you. And uh, stories in there are Atiba Hutchinson, Daniel Henry. Julia Grosso as well, obviously gold medal winner, also Vancouver Whitecaps women's alumni, so that's awesome. Uh, but beyond Darby, you've also got uh, some fresh offerings from Adidas on the boots front, um, always apparel, uh, supporters gear, that kind of stuff as well. If you're looking to dive into the summer season with some new kit, or maybe just reading up on a few Canadian soccer stories, Macy's has the stuff for you so uh, cheers to macy's as always now we'll head back to the show all right um obviously we're back some white caps news a lot of vancouver i guess we can say based on a little bit of non-white caps vancouver related news uh make that what you will but a lot of exciting times in canadian soccer as we've seen uh, again, it's going to be intriguing to see. Can't wait for a day that hopefully we're talking about Whitecaps men's and women's news in this section, maybe, where we've got a, a double section we're talking about. Uh, who knows, maybe we're talking about Julia Grosso's strong performance over the weekend at BC Place. At the same time, we're talking about, uh, you know, 
Whitecaps are getting a, a win on the road on the men's side as well. So, again, here's to hoping all goes right on that front. Excited to see how that project pans out. But for now, the Whitecaps certainly in charge of one team. <laughs> That's for sure. That team is going to play next year. And they're slowly building, slowly building. But, of course, to build, you must destroy sometimes. And unfortunately, a key pillar from the past few years is is no longer with the Whitecaps, as we kind of predicted Jake Nowinski ends up going to St. Louis. I mean, a bit of a no-brainer in that regard. Uh, that, you know, new franchise, of an MLS vet. I think a guy in Nowinski, you can bring you a lot of value. It just felt like that value wasn't going to come with the Whitecaps. I mean, Sam, this is obviously a bit sad on one side to see one of the longest tenured guys, a likable guy, a guy who's done a lot for the club, but it was ultimately one that, as we saw about a month ago, was always going to happen, unfortunately. Oh man, uh, this is like a bit of a a bit of an emotional ride almost because I feel like even just personally I won't attach you to this, Alex. Over the course of Jake Nerwinski's tenure with Vancouver, I've been everything from the only person defending him to like his biggest critic. <laughs> uh, you know, we had I think we had a couple like family members of Jake's get in the 86 forever comments and come after us for our coverage. But then also there was that season where he was the most improved player and everyone was calling him back post Jake. And we were like, no, he's playing tremendously. He's improved so much defensively. Uh, I feel like we talked about Jake so much on this show and so much in general. And yeah, it's sad that uh, other than Russell Tybert, this is the longest tenured Vancouver Whitecap. Uh, which which feels crazy because you know I, I, I feel like I remember him getting drafted like it was a couple days ago, but uh, life moves on and and ultimately it just yeah it felt like tactically that he there he wasn't finding a fit here and, and Jake probably needed a change of scenery as well I think at this point it just kind of came to a natural conclusion but uh, Jake was always so good to chat with um, really honest, really uh, insightful. I think when you kind of got him aside and uh, definitely will would, would miss that around the training sessions. And, uh, and yeah, I think a guy that overall will have a very, you know, positive reputation in Vancouver, given, given his time and, and kind of the way he was involved in the community and always a, a vocal leader on the squad as well. So uh, bittersweet, definitely. But I think overall in terms of, you know, roster construction the the right move and and really happy to see him uh, get another another contract another role pretty pretty seamlessly that's always good to see as well yeah i think uh ultimately it's one where i think jake Nowitzki certainly has a, a place in mls it just felt like if the white caps are going to stick with what they do uh, you know just find it it's hard to find that spot and i think ultimately it's going to be good for him to move on and get the regular playing time uh, that he'll certainly deserve as someone who's been around and still so young for all the experience that he has. And again, I think it's a good pickup for St. Louis. They're bringing in a lot of intriguing players from Europe, some Bundesliga experience, some top level experience, but of course, as we know, always got to round it off with some good MLS experience in in MLS. And I think Jake Nowinski provides that. So Obviously, yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster of six years. I think it's been good to see what the Whitecaps were able to get out of a, a draft pick that at, at the time was quite controversial, I suppose. Wasn't that also the year they could have gotten Julian Gressel? In the end, they did get Julian Gressel uh, further down the road. I think overall, 
yeah, you could have done what have should have. Uh, but anytime you get six, what was it? Six full MLS seasons over, over almost 200 or 300 games uh, for a player. I think that's a good that's a good draft pick considering how many draft picks fall into the weeds, how many players we've seen draft in the first round just disappear. You know, the fact that the Whitecaps were able to get Jake Nowitzki as long as they did. Like, you look again. Yes, Julian Gressel was drafted after Atlanta United. But who is Nico Hansen? Who's Joe Holland, Daniel Johnson, Chris Adoy Atsim, Regan Dunk, Colton Storm, Sam Hamilton? I'm naming, I named seven players who were drafted after Julian Gressel. Who are those guys? Tell me. I, I couldn't know. Then there's Kwame Awuwa, who we do know. Uh, shout out to him for now, also being in the St. Louis system. So St. Louis loving their 2017 draft picks. But again, it shows a lot of guys you end up drafting end up in the weeds. So overall, I think the Whitecaps did good with the draft pick and uh, sad to see Jake go. But that's the that's the reality of football sometimes. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the reality of football, another departure from the squad, certainly a guy that became the the forgotten man a little bit, I think, this past season. Michael Baldissimo, Academy product. I uh, just felt like Baldi was was injured at all the wrong times for Vancouver. And then the the switch to Vanny Sartini probably happened at a, at a bad time for him as well. Just, you know, more of that that ball playing six that wasn't a fit in Sartini's system. But again, kind of followed this one in the Jake category. We're very happy to see him find a new home in MLS quite quickly. Going to be at the San Jose Earthquake. So uh, look forward to watching out for Baldy in, uh, in rivalry week, maybe against Vancouver. We'll have to, we'll have to see, but uh, ultimately Baldy's always had the, the natural ability on the ball, the talent. It's just, uh, you know, the physicality of the game, the, the high motor and, and just staying on the pitch and, and finding consistent form has been a bit of a challenge. So uh, yeah, ultimately this is another one like Jake, where I just don't think there was much of a fit going forward, but still really hope to see him, have success in MLS if possible. And so we'll be watching out for that for sure. For sure. But uh, one center back, can we call him that? Given that's probably where he fit in. Can't call him a wing back, so we'll call him a center back. Leaves. Obviously, that means many holes to be filled as we've been uh, talking at nauseam, especially more center backs that were supposed to be back, potentially could be back, aren't coming back. So Whitecaps certainly in the market for center backs, but while they're still in the market, they have made a purchase. And that purchase was Karifa Yao of CF Montreal. Fascinating timeline of events on that one. I mean, I think we did our guys to watch in the CPL show. I think he might've been one of the names we've thrown on there. Uh, at least he's certainly been a name we've mentioned a lot, uh, but actually I didn't, we didn't mention him on our CPL players to watch show. Why? Because he was owned by Montreal. So we kind of didn't think he'd be available. Like I, this. I do he's... think we talked about him very, very briefly when we took a look at TFC and CF Montreal players or just MLS players in general that were left exposed. He was a name we brought yeah. up. Um, and obviously we know that, you know, the Canadian teams, unprotected players who are Canadian, then it's, it's of particular interest to the other two Canadian teams because they'd be an international player in the U.S. So I, I think we at least name dropped them. I don't know if we got into too much discussion. But. Yeah, well, they, they'd be an international if they weren't a homegrown. So technically, for Yao could have been uh, a domestic in some cases. I'm pretty. You sure. You always know the uh, roster but... rules. You're always you're always one step ahead of me in that <laughs> regard. 
Uh, yeah, all the post-2016 Academy players. So shout out to Max Crepo, who was a year before, and he's an international in LA. But we'll, we'll forever be still figuring out those rules as we go. But uh, yeah, Karifa, yeah, I, again, it was one where at least I've mentioned a, a few times that the Whitecaps should take a look at him, but it was one where he was owned by Montreal. It was kind of like wishful, like, yeah, if, like if you in a perfect world, you can get him. And, but Montreal, cutthroat, ruthless, Olivier Renard, Shout out to him because he did such a good job last year. So can't fault him what he's doing. But uh, he goes and says, yeah, we didn't really think Krifayao fits what we need in our system, which to be fair, I guess they want to trot out Rudy Camacho. They want a guy who's a little more ball playing, whereas a guy like Krifayao, certainly good on the ball, strong strong on the ball, but not a ball player, definitely not yet. He says, okay, go find a new club. Whitecaps, get him at the re-entry draft. And all of a sudden you get him on a league minimum. He's owned by the Whitecaps. Get him in the, the the reentry draft. I mean, this is a solid solid move. I mean, maybe this isn't one that will stand out on day one. I mean, he's still a twenty two year old center back. He still has some time to to want to push in. Like I'm not saying on day one, whatever the schedule's announced, he's going to be starting for the Whitecaps ahead of Ranko Veselinovic. But this is a guy. I think this is the sort of shrewd young Canadian moves that you will that they should make that will pay off because he's shown in the CPL what he can do. He's shown in limited minutes in MLS. And uh, yeah, Karifa Yao, I think a good solid signing. Okay, so on the on the Yao signing, here's what I'll offer. Uh, just as like a hypothetical. Do we think, and this is a bit, um, you know, I think we already know the answer to this, but I'll ask a question anyways. Do we think Yao can be as good or have the same kind of impact as a Flo Youngverth last year, an Andy Rose a couple years ago, you know, uh, a Yasser Kamiri when he was in MLS. Like, yes, I think Yao's going to come in and at the very least be that kind of guy, right? Right off the bat, which is just squad center back depth. And then you look at the fact he's only 20, 20, 22 years old, I think has a good amount of upside. As you said, league minimum contract, good value domestic spot this is uh this is what we've been talking about cheap domestic players with upside um you know the right part of the age curve i mean if anything this is almost this is a little young for a center back there's a lot of time for development still to come but i really like this um and then you know it gives selfishly it gives us a reason to be excited if someone's injured if um, you're going a little deep in the depth chart there's a reason to be intrigued about your third or fourth center back getting a starting spot. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. it. It really does depend a little bit on how the Whitecaps fill out the rest of their center back depth because uh, there's a lot of work left to be done there. But I do overall like this signing. And and at least the fact that he's had a taste, um, more than just a taste, but you know some good experience in an MLS system already, I think is helpful too. So there won't be culture shock or a huge adjustment there. Yeah, and I think selfishly, let's let's be real, Sam. It's nice to see the White Cap sign a player. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've actually seen him play a good amount. Like, again, shout out to a guy like Yasser Kamiri, but you sign a guy and you just see that highlight reel of him just murdering people on a rock and roll beat. You know, you're like, oh, okay, intriguing. At least it's nice to get a guy. Like, okay, I've seen him play. I've seen him play live. I've seen him play. On TV, I've seen him grow and develop over the last few years. So it is nice selfishly on that front. And this, again, that's why the Whitecaps should sign more CPL players. We'd be better able to offer better nuanced analysis right off the bat about what they can do and what their uh, weaknesses are. 
But uh, in terms of Karifa, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's just, it's going to be a good bet. I think it's like we've said, if you're going to make bets, make them on young Canadians, players playing close to home, it's cheap. You know, it's not going to be expensive to make it, take these sort of punts. Uh, you look at how Yasser Kamiri turned out or some of these other players turned out. You made big investments just to bring them over. When these guys are playing in your backyard or talented, they just need an opportunity. And I think Kreefayao is a good shout because he's he's a bit of an interesting profile. Like first of all, he's a you know he's a bit more of the mold of a aerial tank in the air. Like he's he's you know a well built uh, individual, someone who can win a lot of balls in the air. But he's got an intriguing profile. He's good at the ball at his feet. He's not again. He's not like a libero. Say I think that's why Montreal didn't want him because they want a guy like Camacho who's just very good at short passes. You know, kind of playing in between the lines. Whereas Yao. For example, his specialty is that he has this 40-yard ping on him that when he unleashes, it can go. But the Whitecaps need a lot of that. They play a 3-4-1-2 where they want to spread the wing backs. And we mentioned it last year. There were so many times where they get it and none of their center backs could hit that 40-yard switch that that could open up an avenue of play. And Yao has that in his locker. And he's got decent enough foot speed for a big guy like you. He's not that uncomfortable playing in a high line. Cavalry played a pretty high line, and he, 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 you know, he didn't look too uncomfortable by that. So a lot of like in terms of profile, a lot of growth still to come. I think he'll want to grow his short passing game. He'll want to grow his, you know, overall defensive game, his positioning, his awareness, which for a youngster is always going to be a work in progress. But you see the profile, you see the the age. Uh, this is a sort of cheap bets. This costs the Whitecaps nothing. This is what you need to do because this is a guy at the very least I'd be confident saying he could be a good backup center back. And at his age, at his profile, all of a sudden you saw Ranko Veselinovic. That's like maybe that could be a, a potential replacement that you're looking at down the road. I mean, not that TFC was the model of success last year, but you saw Lucas McNaughton come in and it felt like he didn't really mess a step. So uh, I think that the CPL, the MLS comparables are there and it's exciting for us, as you said, someone that you've you've got a good index of matches. You've sort of seen how he looks at the CPL level. And now you can directly translate that to playing for the Whitecaps. I think that'll be really interesting to follow this season, depending on how much he plays, but uh, something to track, certainly. Okay, going to another center back. Uh, nothing official yet, but it does look like Derek Cornelius won't be returning to the Whitecaps, but it also looks like he won't be staying in Greece Malmo stepping in at what kind of feels like the 11th hour and making a push for DC. Obviously, I think for the player, there's reasons why he would want to stay in Europe and uh, especially go to a good league and a good club. But from the Whitecaps perspective, disappointing that they're not able to recapture a guy they they probably really could have used this season and would fit quite well in their system. Uh, Alex, thoughts on the potential move, thoughts on the ramifications for the Whitecaps as well. Obviously, we're well-known advocates of Jarek Cornelius and we'd love to see him return, but I think also happy for him if he gets a fit that, uh, that he's excited about and maybe is, is good for his national team career and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, a lot to unpack. I think ultimately this of course is a loss for the white caps in the sense that it's a 25 year old Canadian left footed center back, which ticks off a lot of boxes. He's young, he's left footed, he's a center back, he's Canadian, um, but you know, and a good enough center back, but it's one where first of all, from Cornelius perspective, I think it's a good move. He was kind of in the middle to bottom of the Greek league. Sweden is slightly worse in coefficients than Greece. So they're about similar league. What that means, because the coefficients change all the time, but he goes to Malmo, a team that a year ago won the league this year, they finished seventh. So it was a bit of a bad year. 
spot you have to imagine based on that they're going to want to go up to push to first again so you're going from a you know lower fish in a, in a in a league to a higher fish in a league so that's always an upgrade for him i think personally it's a great move you, you know you move to sweden uh you get a, a chance to play europa champions league I mean, obviously, it's going to be tough for, for Malmö to play in Europe because I think they need to win the Swedish Cup in the spring to play in the Conference League. But, you know, you'd back them maybe the year after. They're able to make Champions League again because they, they made qualifiers this year. I don't think they made the tournament proper. They came close, uh, but not quite. But those are the sorts of experiences you want for, for a player in Europe. So for Cornelius May as well, again, it's a good stepping stone league. He's just 25, like two, three good years in Malmo. All of a sudden you're looking, maybe a, a push to a top five league, maybe a push to a, you know, a top club in a, in, in a top 10 league as opposed to a top uh, 20 league as this is in Europe, at least in Europe. Uh, so overall good for Cornelius. I think it must be said it will help. I think personally, the margins are so fine between Kamal Miller, Scott Kennedy and Derek Cornelius. So that the more playing it, higher level the better because that battle is going to be fascinating and i think ideally long term you could play two of those guys together as steven vittoria ages out and you can see a miller kennedy or a miller cornelius or a kennedy cornelius pairing in the future so good for him good for canada just a bit tough for the white caps i think it's a player again that you could use he was coming back to you on loan you managed to dodge penitalicos buying him maybe he was just priced out uh in that range but then you sell him for 550k just feels like a bit low. Like it feels like maybe if it's one mil, you do that. That's very fair. You you get your money, you call it a deal. You, you, you go from there. It just feels like 500 K feels like a bit low for a player of his caliber when the white caps could use him. Like if this was a player that was coming back to be the fourth string, of course you take any money you can get, but for someone who could come in and be a key starter for them, that does feel like it's a bit low. Uh, but obviously I guess respect to them for for wanting to help out the player and do good by the player, but it just feels like for what they need and what he could have brought, it feels like they got a little low in terms of cash based on the the reports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can revisit the uh, revisit the specifics of that, you know, and and try to relitigate it. But I think ultimately, like if the player wants the opportunity elsewhere, that's that's what you got to let happen. You got to focus on your own off-season additions, which it does seem like the Whitecaps are doing, linked with uh, a number of South American center-back prospects, uh, some interesting profiles there. Um, and then also something that's popped up over the last month is potentially the Whitecaps looking at a what we're vaguely characterized as a wide player for their designated player spot, which I think is interesting, especially in light of the Lucas Cavallini departure, which I realize, Alex, we may not have actually talked about on this show because I think our most recent podcast was released before this, or have we talked about it on the show? I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, I don't think we did. I think we just, it was kind of, they were in negotiations, and now it's just straight up left in the unattached FC abyss, a free agent, Lucas Cavallini. Which was a weird part of this World Cup, too. Funny that a couple of guys on the squad sort of kept the unattached FC tradition alive. I mean, that just, it adds to the the interest in the striker position, I think, for the upcoming season, right? We were already saying that that's something that the Whitecaps should probably be looking at a different profile, but they've uh, they very much clarified their stance by uh, moving on from Cava. I think 
you know, not not to make too much high level analysis out of this, but the moment we learned about the the value of the option, the fact that he was going to be paid somewhere in the region of two and a half, three million dollars a year, then it's it's kind of obvious why the Whitecaps didn't uh, choose to pick up that option and choose to bring Lucas Cavallini back. And if he wasn't willing to renegotiate it at a, at a much reduced rate, then uh, you can understand why the club moved on. I was certainly an advocate of if he could be, you know, sort of a, a value depth add at a, at a reasonable freight, even if it was a little bit overpriced, that that's something I would have been on board with. But uh, yeah, ultimately, I think it, it makes sense with the direction the club's going, that they're just going to, you know, find someone to move in a different direction. But as as we said, Alex, kind of underlining some of the Whitecaps things throughout this show, I mean, it's it's December 14th preseason starts in a couple of weeks uh the caps still have a lot of work to do and and you'd be hoping i think on their account that they have a couple of these deals very close to the line here and we just haven't heard anything about it because uh they need to get these players into camp as early as they can if they want to hit the ground running because you've got champions league uh not that far away right so uh yeah things are going to move quickly here yeah, well, thankfully, Champions League somehow this year is after MLS. I think it's March. Ended up being, but still, everything lurking. You don't want to head into the fixture congestion. Because that's the thing. They have early season fixture congestion. You don't want to be diving into that, you know, not ready, let's just say. So it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, they go about the YDP uh, situation, and et cetera. What I think this tells me is that they're going to ride Brian White. And to be fair, that's not a bad idea. You saw what you can do in the in the first in twenty twenty one, where you just feed Brian White chances he will score. They're going for the soccernomics model. Let's just say no, don't invest in the number nine. Make sure the system's good around the number nine because a lot of number nines are created more equal than you think. Now it's a question of okay, well then you got to get the, if you're going to go for that approach, you got to get the right pieces around the number nine. I'm just curious to see where this player stands. Like, is it a left wing back player? Surely you're not going to get a you know, a DP right wing back style player if you have Julian Gressel in the fold. So I, I, I'd have to imagine, surely it's a left wing back, right? Because you got Vitae and Gold and White. I assume that's your front three for now, unless you find any upgrades. And that's a pretty darn good front three. You've got Gressel penciled in. You know, you've obviously got Schopf and, and one other player penciled in. Obviously, we hope it's Akayo, but we'll see who ends up. Oh, of course, Kubas. How could how can I bury the lead on that? You got Kubas and Shop for Kayo, whatever penciled in. It's pretty much like the the CB's left back, left wing back, striker, goalkeeper, where the questions are. But if they're not going to commit a DP to a striker, and it, it has to be a left wing back, right? Like it has to be someone of that mold where maybe they end up playing left back and end up playing left wing back in possession and then compliment Gressel on the other side. Very interested to see how that goes, because, I mean, obviously, as we see with Brian White, if you can get him wide service, he'll score, but he can also interlink with number 10. So if you have Golden Vita underneath him doing that, but then you have Gressel and another left footer just whipping in crosses, you do also have that. So I imagine that's the profile the Whitecaps are going for. Just will be interested to see what kind of player they can find. Funnily enough, the kind of player I think of off the top of my head is an Ali Adnan, but... uh that's obviously not going to happen. Ali Adnan is uh, not the player he was three to four years ago, but uh, certainly I have to imagine that sort of profile would be what they're looking at, like a 25-year-old playing uh, at a high level like Adnan was when they did sign him uh, from from Udinese back in the day. Certainly, I think if, if that's the game plan, it'll make for 
very attractive, interesting football from the Whitecaps. Like, I, I would certainly be on board. I just, uh, you know, I wonder what their ability is to to make that happen right we're gonna have to we're gonna have to see the here and uh yeah excited to you know start diving into hopefully some some player signings here in the next month or so and we get a little bit of a better picture i don't know i wouldn't i wouldn't entirely discount the idea that they might go for you know a like a a smaller pacier striker at some point because i feel like that that kind of profile could really suit this team as well and so even if it's a younger guy, even if it's more of a project player, I wonder uh, what their aptitude is, their their desire to pursue that. Well, maybe this is just a complete wild thought, and it's just someone we do have to remember. Dybra Caicedo. Could they be potentially considering yeah. using him he's as a number nine? Just because so of... poor whenever he's played centrally, though. That's my I mean, I I That's really the... like Daber, but he's looked really bad whenever they've tried to play him centrally. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's just it's something because Vite and Gold, surely if they end up playing like they did last year, you're not going to move those two. Like you have two number 10s, they're balling out. That's kind of where you'd pencil in Caicedo. Yeah. And obviously they see him as a key part of the squad. I do wonder if maybe they use Caicedo and White as like, a here's Caicedo. If you're playing, you know, three, three monsters in the air, you want to go a little on the ground, maybe go White for a bit more of an aerial presence. Just throwing that idea out there that you mentioned, Pacey, small striker, mm-hmm. maybe they have someone in mind like diver that they'd try to mold and, and work with yeah it's it's certainly something i think we're we're gonna find out whether they're they're entertaining that what what their plan is maybe they just think that brian white you know with the support of vite and and gold and and wide service is going to be enough we're, we're gonna have to see as we uh tuck into the preseason and and the picture starts to develop but uh we'll be watching that um, speaking of watching things, news on the broadcasting front, obviously, I think if you're listening to this podcast over an hour in, you'll know that MLS is moving to Apple TV next season, but TSN had been, had been talking saying, Hey, we're going to have some MLS content. We're not going to completely abandon, um, our relationship with the league. And now we know what that's going to look like for 2023 uh, TSN along with Fox in the U.S. announcing uh, the sort of limited rights deal. And what's, I think, important for for us here north of the border is that TSN is going to broadcast one match, one Canadian team, that is, per week. Uh, there will be other MLS matches as well, but only one Canadian team a week. And obviously with TSN being part of the Bell Media family, I think a lot of people concerned that it's going to be all CF Montreal and all TFC. Uh, I certainly can't make any kind of promises in that respect. We'll have to see what the product is like. But what this makes clear, Alex, is that uh, if you want to watch the Whitecaps week in, week out in 2023, even you know with a Vancouver postcode, you're going to need um, to move over to a streaming service, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, and I, I don't know what kind of impact it's going to have on Whitecaps viewership, but we're, we're just going to have to see here. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all crumbles. It feels like there's a lot of bits and parts that are still coming together. Like they don't have the... any of this figured out the league level yet. I think it's a complete nightmare. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, like, I'm excited to be proven wrong. Yeah, it's one of those where I just see a lot of 
all over the place. Like you see, oh, how the heck are they going to get subscribers? But then they're like giving away subscriptions to every season ticket holder. So that'll help people get in. But then it's like you you throw some games on linear TV. So it's like, okay, you're obviously still see some value there. Uh, and then there's going to be these matches of the week. Like it just feels like there's so much going on. And I guess we're going to maybe just going to have to see how the season starts to see it all laid out into place. I just think it's weird in terms of like, a one match a week for Canadian teams just because that doesn't feel like it just doesn't feel smart. I don't know. It just feels like well, they always create from the streaming perspective. They're, they're putting it they're They're making you have to adopt the streaming platform is what they're doing yeah. by making it one a week, right? They didn't want to put themselves in a position. I guess it's certainly if bell media wasn't willing to offer up the money necessary. Um, they weren't going to make it so that, Canadians could get away without the streaming service because if every Canadian match was on TSN, then I think the majority of like Whitecaps fans wouldn't sign up to watch RSL against San Jose Earthquakes, right? So I think I feel like that's where the decision's been made, where they want even one team hardcore fans to be committed to the streaming platform, which could could help them, could hurt them. I, I again, it, I don't know how people make their decisions and react to this. For us, it's it's kind of a, a non-choice, right? We're covering the team, so we're we're going to be watching on whatever platform it's on. But uh, for some people, that might be a difference maker. Yeah, I think it's... Again, I, I, it's weird about the, like, yeah, the one match a week. It's just going to... feels like that's going to cause a lot of... How do you pick what's the best team? Like, say, obviously, fingers crossed, what if all three Canadian teams are good? And, like, who do you, how do you pick whose match? Do you, you do the Whitecaps get cut because their games are later is it just do you cut tfc in montreal which cuts out a big market does montreal just get cut because they're they have their rds like montreal has 16 games a year on rds which also that feels weird like 16 like why that number that's like not even half the schedule it's like 47 percent of a schedule on uh on rds it just feels like a weird compromise it feels like you either maybe go all or you go like nothing to a point where you just like very minimally tease but i suppose this is what they're doing it just feels like a weird uh maybe i'm just struggling to wrap my head around it's like if tsn would come in and play ball maybe you'd play ball for a bigger amount or a more like consistent like oh we're gonna rotate or we're gonna just do like 10 tfc 10 montreal 10 toronto game or 10 vancouver games a year or something like that but uh i mean i'm interested to see how the, the cookie crumbles obviously financially it was a big deal for the league they did get a lot of money from this and that's going to help salary caps it's going to help a lot of business but obviously getting the money for rights is one thing you do want to have your product visible and at a time where mls is growing and more visible than ever it'll be interesting to see uh how that affects viewership and uh like say what's going to happen like does this just mean that we know next year it's going to be MLS cup on TSN. Like, does this kind of already confirm that? So you don't, you, you know, if you're, if you're the casual who just wants to watch the big game as well, the big games are going to be on there. Anyways, it, it feels like there's a bit of a, a, a gray zone between uh, all, all this. And I guess maybe we just have to see how it uh, all crumbles out. Well, I think big picture, what gives me a bit of pause or just makes me kind of go, huh, not sure I saw this coming is, you went from like the white caps of my youth where it was on TSN and it felt like there was actually like pretty good, pretty extensive pre post-match coverage, like a, you know, there, it was a whole TV product. And then you had the radio as well. Like TSN used to put a bunch of effort into their pre and post-match radio content. And it, 
like it felt like there was a really holistic media package and now you've got um you know the white caps radio on a on a news station and sometimes the you know the coverage is very sporadic um certainly there's not tons of white caps content radio wise outside of match day itself and then you've got you know from the tv product perspective like is there even going to be pre and post match because i know like if you watched mls through DAZN, they cut immediately after the match they they put the white caps um you know they, they put the lineup graphics up right before the match and often the lineup graphics aren't even correct um it's just like super low effort and i do wonder if that's what the league is moving towards they, they've talked about this you know having league-wide panels and extensive pre and post-match coverage but i do wonder if it's just going to be like you know kind of what they did with mls next pro uh but souped up where it's like here's a couple cameras here's a basic commentary track and we're really not going to provide you anything else and it's it seems strange that in a sense at least from the canadian perspective the the quality of coverage has gone backwards in the last 10 years instead of forward. And I think that's, that's disappointing, but uh, uh, I'm going to, you know, going to have to wait and see how the season goes. And obviously it's going to progress to uh, the product we get week one of the MLS season is not going to be the product week 30 of the MLS season. So hopefully there's improvement there as well. And hopefully, you know, from a Vancouver perspective, local people, knowledgeable people get involved. It's not just uh, some random people kind of parachuted in. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest thing. I think you want to, at the very least, no matter what happens, you don't want to lose the local feel. Because I just feel like, I don't know, maybe that's me, but it feels like that's one of the my favorite parts of, of North American sports. Is that like, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw in the easy example because they're next door, the Canucks. Obviously, they're the big fish, but it is nice that you know, for 80% of the season, you're getting local, you're getting, you know, Garrett and Shorty, <laughs> you know, you're getting, you're getting the regulars, you're getting that coverage, you're getting the usual analysts, etc. And no matter what you think of them, etc. At least, you know, it's a local broadcast, it's people from the city or working in the city that care about the team that follow the team. And you want to keep that. I think that's what's special about sports broadcasting, especially North America, where it's so huge. It's not like, say, in in like germany for example you have you know in germany you can get away with say there's six bundesliga games uh, i don't even think it's possible if you have like four bundesliga games on one day and like four on the next day that you can just kind of rotate the commentators from a city to a city because the country's tiny you can travel you can get away with sort of having a smaller broadcast team in a league like mls like it's just it's so big that you can't rely on a pool of of reporter or of commentators because that means they're going to be a calling off a screen which isn't always productive and then you lose some of the local feel and you might not know the team as well because like let's be honest like when there's 29 teams like, it's hard to keep up with what's going on at charlotte and and miami etc like we we do our darn best because we love mls and we're trying to keep up it's hard like i know you tell me who's you know miami's backup left center back you're gonna have to go on foot mob and guest and, and figure out what the heck's going on there and I just like if I was a commentator, I'd be like, you're telling me to cover one week I'm covering Inter Miami versus Charlotte, the next week I'm covering Houston versus RSL, the next week I'm covering like TFC versus like New England Revolution, then I'm doing Whitecaps versus like Portland. Like, how do you keep up with all that in, in, in that regard? So I do keep hope they keep the local feel. I think you want to have the local teams, teams that are invested. And of course, you have national broadcasts. You have people who kind of parachute in for some big games. Like, that's just the natural 
part of, of, of the business, but it's just going to be feel so weird to do a national model all year long. And you're going to be hearing, hearing that. I just feel like they're going to spread themselves too thin, but again, like to be proven wrong on that front. Yeah, very much, very much wait and see on that front, but I thought it was worth noting, especially the uh, Canada specific nature of the, the news drop that came down. Okay. Final note of the show. Not the Vancouver Whitecaps, but Vancouver FC have made their first player announcement. It wasn't official when we started the show in real time, but it is official now. Uh, Callum Irving obviously dropped a couple days ago that he was leaving Pacific, so I think a lot of people saw this on the horizon. But Irving will be the first member, the inaugural member of Vancouver FC. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Thoughts on the way Vancouver FC has been operating so far and, uh, and this first announcement. Yeah. I mean, they need to get the ball rolling, rolling at some point. I mean, they're not rushed for time in the sense that as long as they get everything done by April, they should be good. That's so still four or five months away, but also, you know, you want to see the movement on the stadium. You want to see movement on kits and players, but you know, you got to get the ball rolling and they've slowly been doing that. I mean, Again, we I don't know how much uh, did we even mention it last time? Afshin Gottby, head coach for Vancouver FC. I mean, uh, you know they started with that good, uh, you know, hiring a guy with a lot of experience, someone who's you know been traveled around, and I think this is a good another good building block for them. They got their coach, they got you know they got the their guy, and now they get a guy in Callum Irving. You smart teams, you build you build a spine, and I think there's no more, I guess part of the spine that is more important than a, maybe a number six than a, a goalkeeper. And though Vancouver FC gets that out of the way with Cal Irving, obviously that's tough blow for Pacific, especially he leaves to go across the straight, so to speak, maybe kicks uh, kicks off a burgeoning rivalry between those two teams. But, uh, you know, he gets to, to go to Vancouver. He gets to be maybe the building block in a team he had. You know, he certainly accomplished a lot with Pacific. Now he gets to kind of reset and, and help build a club from the ground up. I think this is a sort of core CPL signing you want. It doesn't get much better than that, let's just say, in terms of an expansion team. Because you look at, say, Ottawa, to use that example, that year one, they got a lot of leftovers on that 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 team. And then they built up from there, and it took them a few years. Getting a guy like Cal Irving, this is one of the guys who was one of the best at his position last year, has been one of the best at his position. I think it's a good place to start and gives you some areas to build out as you get the center backs, the sixes, the nines and everything from there. Yeah. I mean, hard to go wrong with a guy who's been super consistent in the CPL is going to provide an immediate identity is going to provide immediate leadership. It's just one position you don't have to worry about. Um, and, and a local guy too. Right. So I think it, it ticks all the boxes It it makes a sense as just kind of like a, a no risk signing. Like this is this is gonna be a good addition to the squad. He's gonna be a reliable day in, day out starter. And uh, so I think that's the kind of guy you wanna bring in as your first player, right? Like just something you don't have to think about or worry about too much. Yeah, no, absolutely. You wanna you wanna get the ball rolling and I'll be interested to see, I think, who the other CPL vets they sign are. Surely that's not the only one. Obviously they're gonna be looking, I mean they're getting two new players tomorrow, no matter what, for us as a recording. Obviously, that being the CPL Youth Sports Draft, uh, going to be intriguing to see how the dominoes fall on that front. 
lot of talent in the youth sports system. It sounds like they might even, you know, look like they might could go after some more youth sports talent beyond that. Of course, then you get your internationals, some more CPL veterans, and then round it off there. Going to be interesting to see uh, some of these guys they target. But yeah, good start with with Irving, just because again, you need a good core goalkeeper, and then from there. I'm curious to go see how this turns out, especially again, given on what Afshin got be said at the beginning of it. He's like, we want to play 4 3 3, you know, di- dynamic, high possession football. Like, I'm thinking, like, ooh, what are those center backs going to look like? Like, what's the six going to be like? Who are these, some of these guys are going to target? Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how, how things fall into place from there. But uh, exciting. It's always exciting to see. Uh, you know, love or hate the North American expansion model. There's a lot of reasons to certainly hate it. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. Uh, but there's also a lot of reasons to love it. And one of the the reasons is building a team from scratch. Always fascinating to see how the roster pieces come together. And it's going to be uh, intriguing to see see what they do from from this point on. Now that the the, the ball's rolling, like once the there's always one, you feel like a floodgate's going to be coming. It's going to be fun to see how that shapes up. And in terms of the U uh, Sports draft and the rest of the roster construction, I would say definitely from you know, what I've heard about this team, I would expect more of that local theme to continue, you know, guys that are already part of the community. I think that's something that's going to be very important to Vancouver FC, an identity they're going to try to build. This is, you know, a club that's all about BC soccer and kind of embraces that identity. So I'm I'm assuming we're going to see that in the U Sports front. And I think we'll see that with some some more player signings as well. So uh, yeah, excited to see more of these pieces fall into place. Um, we'll see how much the, uh, there's been, I mean, a lot of, a lot of vitriol, a lot of venom about the name, about the logo. How, I wonder how much that's going to last into them actually playing matches. Like I, I feel like it's easy to pick holes and knock it down when we haven't seen a kit, we haven't seen a stadium, we haven't seen them play a football match. Uh, I wonder how it will age. That's something I'm going to be be curious to watch. But uh, yeah, Alex, maybe any quick thoughts on that, and then we'll uh, we'll sign off unless you have any final thoughts here. But uh, yeah, looking forward to more Vancouver FC <laughs> coverage too. I mean, we haven't said a lot about it yet, but uh, as as there's more to talk about, we'll certainly continue to cover it here on the show. Hundred percent. I mean, it's just going to be interesting how it comes out. I mean. Yeah, obviously, as a branding department, you you don't want to make a logo and then you find uh, there's a pretty similar logo for a security company uh, somewhere in Ontario. Like, again, that's just it's tough scenes. But, you know, also it's something where there's been a lot of logos made in the world and there's always that off chance that you make a logo and it ends up being a little more, you know, art. What do they say? Art always imitates life. So there's always a chance you end up falling in the wrong stones in that regard. I think the best way no matter good branding is usually winning branding. And I think uh, at least for them, now that they've got this all of the way, they've gone for their identity, they're gone for their colors. The best way to make say steel gray memorable or whatever color their kits end up being, you know, red or the, the, you know, the black, et cetera. The best way to make that memorable is winning. Like you look at the orange of forge. Why is it memorable? Cause they've won three titles. You think of even this year, the red and white of, of Ottawa. It's cause they were successful. The purple of Pacifics cause they won a title you know, red of cavalry, et cetera. Like you, you look at some of the teams that are a bit forgetful, like the, you know, the, the green of York, the, the light blue of Halifax, maybe aren't as memorable because they haven't had that chance to, to get that consistent success. So in the end of the day, good branding will be dictated by winning, but maybe what this says is that, Hey, teams are teams. There's a close eye on Vancouver FC. There's been a lot of 
scrutiny, a lot of, you know, okay, these are the crosstown guys. They're trying to, you know, talk a big game and beat up on the white caps, et cetera. Well, they're going to have to to back up that big talk. And I think that's fascinating. You always want, you know, it, it, it's good to see teams with uh, certainly who talk the talk. And of course you want to see them go out and walk uh, the walk, but uh, Vancouver FC been talking the talk, at least in terms of ambition, in terms of getting things done. And Callum Irving, I mean, the first sign that uh, they certainly are at least trying to get the pieces to help them walk the walk. Yeah, absolutely. Looking looking forward to uh, seeing some, you know, some Vancouver FC action, either in person or or on stream. Uh, so, you know, we'll be watching for that. I think there's lots lots to look forward to in this spring. I feel like part of me wants to fast forward ahead a bit, Alex, so we can dive into all this stuff. But, you know, part of me appreciates the off season as well. And as I kind of said off the top of the show, hope everyone's having a good holiday season. And, you know, take some time away from not away from football, but, you know, a bit of a break too to, to spend time with family and, uh, and enjoy the holidays. So I uh, hope everyone enjoyed this show. Um, you know, it's had a good good month or so without third sub, and uh, we, we promise we'll be back reasonably soon. Uh, yeah, Alex, any, any final thoughts for you before we sign off? Yeah, I mean, uh, excited to keep diving in. A lot of news going to continue to come. It's funny, as of recording, for example, just today, just to give you an idea of what we're working with. Cal Irving dropped. Um, Halifax Wanderers signed Tiago Coimbra, the the alias Canada from the U20 men's uh, qualifiers. So that's an intriguing prospect. Dominic Zator from, from York just signed in the Polish first division. All this to say news is just flying. Like this has just been in two hours of recording. All this is, has come out. So we're going to have, I feel a lot of white caps news in similar fashion uh, to come out soon. So we'll certainly be here to follow all that. And I'm excited again, the off season is both the best and the worst time of year terms of it sucks there's no soccer but also it's kind of fascinating to see where some of the dominoes fall so uh we'll be here to help them fall with you but i think on that note find me on twitter at alex music at btsfancity btsfancity.com uh etc all the work for one soccer.ca and company um and we'll, we'll we'll definitely chat again soon uh feel free if you've enjoyed the podcast leave a rating on apple or spotify always much appreciated of course uh, we owe everything to you, the listeners. Always a pleasure to hop in on the show, but I'll throw it to Sam to close things up. Yeah, you can find me as always at Samuel underscore rowboat on Twitter at 86forever.com. You can find our podcast at Third Sub Pod on Twitter, The Third Sub on Instagram. Thanks, everyone. We'll chat again soon.